city parks are some of the hardest working real estate in any urban area. Beyond a space to connect to nature, parks help improve air quality, offer spaces for communities to gather, and have been linked to improved health, educational outcomes, reductions in crime for the surrounding areas. Uh, We're fortunate to have an impressive amount of park space in Houston, especially through our local bayous. However, access to parks, and especially high-quality parks, remains an issue for many. I'm Weston Twardowski, an instructor in Rice University's Environmental Studies Program and the Program Manager of the Diluvial Houston Initiative, and you're listening to Gulf Streams on KPFT Houston, where we talk with leading experts and community leaders to better understand the environmental problems and potential solutions facing our community. Do you have a question about our parks? Give us a call at 713-526-5738, extension 2. At 713-526-5738, extension 2. Today on Gulf Streams, we're speaking with Beth White, President and CEO of the Houston Parks Board, and Dr. Daniel Potter, Senior Director of Research at the Kinder Institute for Urban Research. Beth, Daniel, welcome. Hello. Hello, thanks for having us. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. Um, Beth, you are, of course, as president and CEO of Houston Parks Board, a uh, general expert in many park-related matters. Uh, but uh, the two of you have been working together on some different projects. The Kinder Institute just put out um, a, a large survey of kind of park data and kind of priorities for going forward. Um, and there's been a number of exciting developments at Houston Parks Board. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to kind of a conversation around what is the next steps in our, our park culture in Houston, and what are things for us to be looking out for? Uh, but just to start us off, uh, can you tell us, Beth, what is the Houston Parks Board? Well, thank you again for having us here. Houston Parks Board is an organization that's been around nearly 50 years, founded in 1976 by a group of very dedicated folks who wanted to help parks. And we worked pretty solidly there, sort of one park at a time, helping communities, whether it was a city entity or a community neighbor who wanted to improve a park. Um, So we improve, protect, and expand our park system throughout the Houston region. And our goal is to have an interconnected network of parks and trails Mm. for a more resilient Houston region. I'm glad resiliency is already coming in. We'll we'll come back to to parks and resiliency. Um, Daniel, could you just introduce, you know, the Kinder Institute does so many things, um, but, you know, certainly urban research on that. uh, But particularly, you just put out this exciting report. Can you talk a little about Kinder and this report that's just come out? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Kinder Institute, we're uh, fortunate enough to be located at Rice University, uh, where we employ a partnership model to connect with community organizations, connect with uh, uh, entities, governmental, local, uh, to talk about what are the questions, the challenges, the issue that Houston needs to be grappling with, mm. and what are the how do we how do we bring data and research <laughs> into those discussions? Um, and so, uh, with that as the backdrop, and, and you know, to your point, we uh, have done. <laughs> Uh, research in a variety of different <laughs> settings, and we can leave that uh, broader conversation for another day. But with regards to this report in particular, we had the opportunity uh, to connect with a few different local funders, a few different you know uh, parks groups uh, that were interested in better understanding what does park equity, particularly around finance, look mm. like here in the Houston area. Great. So I know one of the big things that was in that report was around financing. Um, before we jump into that, though, I, I, I want to ask park equity, because I think that's going to be something that we talk through in this whole conversation. What does that mean? What, what do we mean by park equity? And what are we thinking about with that? 
Well, I would say that you can define equity in a number of different ways. And I think at Houston Parks Board, we had been focused on geographic equity. Mm. Can everyone access a park? Mm. And as we worked, you know, a park at a time and the organization grew, we started looking across the whole uh, network of parks and came up with... um, a way to implement biogreenways, which was, you know, something that a lot of folks had talked about, particularly the Quality of Life Committee at um, the Greater Houston Partnership, and figured out a way to actually get it done. So in 2012, there was a park bond that was passed by an overwhelming majority of voters that um, gave $100 million, and we raised $125 million to create this 150-mile system along nine major bios. And we're at the very tail end of finishing up some segments, but when you think about geography, that project alone puts 1.5 million people within 1.5 miles of a biogreenway. Wow. So at our organization, okay, we're looking at geographic equity, but what about all the parks that uh, link to the system or should link to the system? So we started looking at ways to make those connections. Um, and we really took a hard look at the neighborhood parks and in working with Mayor Turner, taking a look at existing parks that had not been improved in a number of years. And so we identified within the neighborhood park definition, um, there's 190 neighborhood parks within the 383 wow. park system, and took a look at physical conditions, took a look at um, what had been invested in those parks, and really determined which ones needed to be addressed first. Mm -hmm. So we are going to have 22 parks finished by the end of Mayor Turner's term. We're on uh, ribbon cutting number 14 coming up. (laughs) Um, But it was really, you know, a very interesting exercise. And what we chose to use as the metric, getting back to your question um, about equity, is the social vulnerability index Mm. that the CDC was using. So not just looking at geographic equity in terms of can people get to this park, which was a huge consideration, but, you know, what kinds of communities are we serving? And, you know, it was everything from health indicators to um, education, single family households, and, you know, who was using these parks. And so we we put those two sets of criteria together and came up with the system of where do you start when you have so much need? So we started with these first 23 and we've built up a system where we're working with the business community through greater houston partnership making the case that um, it's good business for the city to have a thriving park system so is this related to the the 50 50 initiative that some folks might have heard of and and for those who haven't what what is the 50 50 initiative and, and how does that relate So the 5050 Park Partners has been really Mayor Turner's initiative for neighborhood parks. Okay. And, you know, we have incredible signature parks in the city of Houston with wonderful conservancies. There are public-private partnerships who, you know, augment the public funding that goes into parks. But there are a lot of neighborhoods that don't have uh, conservancies. Most neighborhood parks do not or have friends groups. So how do we lift up those parks? Because most people, the the park that's important to them is the one that's near their home that they can get to. So the 50-50 Park Partners is really trying to lift up community parks based on community engagement, sustainability, and, you know, ongoing stewardship of those parks. But teaming up with the business community was a really important initiative because, again, we want to make the economic case for why parks are important. 
So we're the project manager for that initiative uh, for Mayor Turner. So because we get to the economic side, maybe maybe we can go over to Daniel. And can you walk us through a little? I know one of the big things from the Kinder Report is really focusing on a kind of a different kind of equity, thinking about you know how much we actually pay in for parks and and what the state of public funding around parks is. Can you walk us through? I mean, there's some really fascinating statistics in there about where we stack up nationally, but also in terms of Texas. What does the state of park funding look like? Yeah, and I think that's an important uh, inroad when it comes to this question of equity, Mm -hmm. Uh, in particular because uh, one of the things that public funding does is, especially thinking about public funding that's going to go towards the Houston Parks and Recreation Department, HPARD. Mm -hmm. So that's our primary parks uh, agency here in Houston, uh, public parks agency here in Houston. Um, And so uh, when we're talking about funding going to them, what we are talking about is funding going to the entity that has that type of oversight across all parks uh, and green space throughout Houston. And you can contrast that to some of what Beth was bringing up earlier, where we have some amazing conservancies Mm -hmm. that are helping stand up uh, nationally, if not internationally, recognized and renowned destination parks in our area. And it's critical. We have it. And, And what do I mean by destination parks? Think, uh, think Herman Park, think Memorial Park, think Buffalo Bayou, you know, uh, uh, Discovery Green. <laughs> yeah, uh, sorry, I, I blanked for a second. Uh, Discovery Green in that downtown space. And These Bio Greenways. Mm-hmm. It's another yes, conservancy, be, if you will, for the whole system. Oh, yes, yes. And, and so you've got these very large parks that have that type of uh, uh, investment. Uh, But when you start to look into it, again, this is exactly what Beth is talking about, when you start to get into those pocket parks, those neighborhood parks, the things you and I might think about is, okay, yeah, I know that green space down the roadway. They oftentimes aren't going to have a conservancy. They're not going to necessarily have that private funding or uh, TERS tax tax incremental reinvestment zone type funding directed at it. And so HPARD becomes that singular entity that has that oversight as well as potential funding stream to help stand up what's going on in those parks. And so when we're talking about some of these numbers, while a lot of the comparisons that we can get into talk about how does Houston as a – Overall, as a whole, compared to other cities around the state, your Dallas's, your Austin's, your San Antonio's, other cities around the country, Chicago's, New York's, L.A.'s, so on and so forth, um, the important reason to call out this public funding is that's the funding that makes sure we're standing up parks and green space for all of these different neighborhoods. And so when we when we looked at the data and we saw that in Houston, uh, over about the last three years, uh, and we're using uh, Truster Public Land data, so let me just mm. start there. There's there's a uh, tons of details that we could get into, <laughs> so I'm going to throw that out as a caveat up front. We're working with data coming from the Trust for Public Land. Which, sorry, what, what is the Trust for Public Land? Let's take a detour. Good call. <laughs> okay, so Trust for Public Land data. Um, are are pieces of data that are collected from the 100 most populous cities around the country annually Okay. um, using a 20-page survey. They're reaching out to that primary parks agency. They're saying, hey, how much are you spending on these certain things? Think your maintenance, think your land acquisitions, think your capital improvement. Uh, How much, uh, what are the types of amenities, facilities Mm. you have? What are those amenities and facilities? Uh, The splash pads here in Houston are an example of the type of an amenity that might be there. Um, uh, And so uh, it's collecting that data in as much of a standardized manner across all these different cities around the country in order to stand up at the end of the day a score um, and it uses those scores to rank 
Mm. Um, and and so, um, can I ask the scary question then of where does Houston rank? <laughs> Okay. <laughs> knowing it's a complex data set, knowing there are many factors, let's let's just let's take the top line there. Where do we rank? We rank seventy one right now. Okay, and that's out of a hundred. Mm-hmm. And so um, you could take that rank and you could stand it up and you could say, "Wow, look at how far behind Houston is." And I I think Beth, please feel free to hop in if there's some <laughs> truth to that we should always be looking to do better we also just have to recognize to your point there's details and complexities in the background that aren't about what do parks and green space look like here in houston but how do we standardize this across Mm. these different cities and so um i don't know beth (laughs) oh i i um would love to chime in here but one thing for everyone to remember is how we compare as a physical city, mm. 630 square miles, when you compare us to Chicago, Philadelphia, Baltimore, and Detroit, all four of those cities could fit in the footprint of Houston. Yeah. So in some ways, with this ranking, and you know, Trust for Public Land, very well-regarded organization. I worked there for 10 years. <laughs> um, every city has some complaint about the <laughs> data that's being collected. Does the number um, one city, I feel like they're probably okay with the data. <laughs> Unless they're advocating for more park funding, there so. Um, but it. But what's important about it is there is a standard measure out there, mm. and but you have to dive into it and you have to look and see how we compare on each criteria. Mm. Um, but when you're trying to serve a population that's similar in size to Chicago but spread out in such a large way, you know that's one thing to take into consideration. But I think what is a really crystal clear metric is park capita, I mean, park spending per capita. And I think that's one of the measures that people really look at, like how do we compare, and not necessarily against uh, national rankings, but just within Texas, as Dan was saying, you know, comparing ourselves to other Texas cities. So, so where do we fall <laughs> by that metric? So uh, if you take three years of data, we okay. spend on average about $32 per resident. Okay. Okay. Uh, Dallas spends about 109. Oh, okay. San Antonio spends about 126. Austin spends about 150. So significantly behind our peers in Texas. On per capita spending. On a per capita spending basis. It translates to millions of dollars. Let's not of lose course. sight of that, those big <laughs> bu- you know, budgets we do have. But when you start to break it down on that per resident, this is to Beth's exact point. This is an enormous space geographically spread. It's very, very highly populated. And so when you start to take that big budget and look at it on a per resident basis, we do lag behind. At the same time, I think one of the interesting findings out of the report is that you you saw that 70% of Houstonians support a $2 a month increase in taxes to park funding and 51% support a $5 a month. You know, I'm tempted to say, you know, for for the price of an Apple TV Plus subscription, you could have more park service. Um, but <laughs> but Apple TV just also went up. Um, <laughs> but to the point stands of you know it's it's you're looking at these really marginal increases that seem really popular. Yes, and I'm, I'm going to throw a little bit of a caveat Please in there, do. which is to say, uh, it wasn't necessarily about raising taxes. Mm. Um, and part of that is just the revenue cap is in place, and that takes a whole litany of things uh, to try to get that to move. 
Um, and so one of the things we were asking for residents was would they be open to some sort of an alternative form of payment that would go to specifically towards funding of parks and green mm. space, improvement, build-out, maintenance. Um, and, and I think one of the important things that we have seen through some of our research is, you know, if you're walking around going up to a Houston resident saying, hey, are you interested in paying the city 50 bucks more a month? <laughs> I, I, you, almost universally, the response coming back is going to be like, uh, no, a hard pass on that one, sir. Um, but uh, what I think is important, why I point that out, is when you start to ask about, hey, can I connect that additional funding to services? Mm-hmm. Can I connect that additional funding to resources and supports? Now we're talking about a way different level of of, of um of acceptance, really, of approval, of, of, of openness to that. So that's where, you know, we're, we're not just saying, hey, two bucks a month. You're going to throw that at the city. <laughs> it's, are you willing to put two bucks a month towards mm-hmm. improving and maintaining parks and green space? Five bucks a month towards improving and maintaining parks and green space. And, and so to hear a majority of people coming back and saying, uh, yes, that is the case, um, it absolutely has that ability um, to provide potential extra funding um, that would go a very long way um, in, in helping to um, expand, improve, and grow the park system that we have here. And I think one of the things that, you know, Beth, uh, we want to talk about has to do with quality as well, mm-hmm. is, is we've talked about the presence, the numbers, maybe even the size of parks. But when we're talking about the quality of parks, yeah. you know, that's kind of a whole different story. I want to get into that in just a second. But first, I do see we have Melissa on the line who has a question about access to parks, and I'd love to take that. So, Melissa, you're on the air. What's your question? Okay, so um, the only park that um, – hi, you guys. Hi, hi panel. Hello. <laughs> hi. Uh, so the only the only um, park that I have access to is um, McGregor Park, right? So – and then that park is not – even in my neighborhood, it's just a park I prefer to go to. But apparently, whenever anyone does a gathering, we have – a bunch of cops that just comes up and shows shows up and shuts it all down. We have this thing called Sunday Fun Day. If the park is not access to uh, is, uh, if the park is not accessible to us, then what is it that we as um, citizens who are just trying to come together and, and you know um, just having a just just having a gathering? If what, where, what's the process on that? If the parks are, 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 if we have access to the park, but yet every time we throw a party, we don't, we're not able to do that. Then what's the point of the park, right? I just want to, I just want to find out why McGregor Park is so locked down, but yet we don't get the funding to even build more on it. Because like a lot of people use the park, it's just, it seems like when we go to use the park we can't have access to the park. And I don't know if that's some type of sensor or some type of conservative thing that you guys were talking about earlier, but um, I'm finding that the urban area parks are always barricaded, always like, you know, not given access to, but yet if I can go way to the beltway side, to the bigger park, you know, I have that, but we can't access the parks that's right here in our neighborhoods. Why is that? Thanks for that, Melissa. So, yeah, I think the general question, you. you know, access I'll hang is. Up and- Great, thanks, Melissa. Um, yeah, so I mean, I think that the broader question around, you know, equity, especially what you're talking about with, you know, the value of, to community of parks, especially neighborhood parks that need. Can you do either one of you want to talk a little about that importance, or you know, things uh, more directly to Melissa's question? 
Sure. Um, and I do think it's an interesting thing that you've pointed out. Um, that is a very popular park, McGregor mm-hmm. Park, and we've been working with Friends of McGregor Park, um, which is now a conservancy, and the community to update the master plan for maybe McGregor Park. Maybe for folks park. who don't know, what is a parks conservancy? Because maybe that would be a helpful definition. Yeah, um, a conservancy gets set up as a not-for-profit organization, and their reason for being is to support what goes on in the park. And they work in partnership with um, Houston Parks and Recreation, if they own the park, or Harris County, whoever, whatever government entity owns the public park. And um, they work very hard to be that bridge between the community and the agency mm. and um, help to coordinate events in the park um, depending on their capacity. But um, I'd, I'd love to follow up on this and suggest that the best thing to do, Melissa, is to reach out to Houston Parks and Recreation. There's a programming department. They do issue permits because it is such a popular park. And um, there are lots of events that are hosted in the park. I know um, one event that we host on a regular basis is a monthly volunteer cleanup um, mm-hmm. with friends of McGregor Park. We were out there just Saturday before last with about 100 people who came to the park on a nice Saturday morning to you know, help spruce up the park. Um, but I do know it's a heavily programmed park, so I'm wondering if that might help to sit down with the programming people and just find out what, what the rules are and the, the uh, permits are, but also to let them know what your experience is. And you know, they can set up a meeting with the police department and work in coordination. That's great. Thank you. I, so as we, as we mentioned that, you know, I think that's one of the things that I, I've seen in a lot of the Houston Parks Board materials and also that comes clear in the Kinder Institute's recent report, but really thinking about the role of these spaces as community spaces, as necessary for communities and neighborhoods. Um, and I think, you know, I think most people, if you're like, do you like parks? They're like, yeah, of course, I like parks. <laughs> but that doesn't necessarily capture the nuance of how many really important and positive impacts our park ecosystem plays in the community. You've already mentioned resiliency some. So I'm wondering if either of you would like to, to just identify some of the myriad goods that our park system actually provides, in addition to you know a nice space to wander through, a fun place to go play basketball. There are a lot of really tangible, important effects that parks have. And I just I want to acknowledge that and give you some space to talk about that and make the pitch for parks. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's wonderful. Um, you know, just again, thinking about Melissa's concerns and the way I look at parks, and I say this often, is that they're the last true democratic spaces mm. that we have, with a small d, where, <laughs> where people go and they experience folks that they may never run across in any other setting and have a way to work together in common purpose. And so that's why I, I'm going to follow up on McGregor Park, find out what's <laughs> happening on these Sunday fun days, because it is a place we want people to feel welcome in all parks and that they have a role there. And that speaks to one of the greatest benefits of parks, and that's social cohesion. It helps create community in these parks. Mm. And getting back to 5050, the way we approach the work of any physical capital improvement that goes on in the park needs to come from the community. How do they use the park? How mm. do they want to be in the park? Um, the health benefits of having a park. There are so many studies out there that show the benefit of having a quality park where you can go and just be in nature. It may be someone's only 
exposure to nature is being in a city park. And there's a great book out called The Nature Fix by Florence Williams. She was our luncheon speaker a couple of weeks ago. And she looked at the research that's going on around the world about the benefits of being in nature. And mm-hmm. for again, for many of our residents, a city park is really the only nature that they experience. But um, you talked about resiliency. Mm-hmm. Parks are a huge player in flood control um, or flood mitigation. We don't really control flooding. Um, and I think that um, it's so important to think about not just human habitat, but, you know, the flora and fauna who need these parks that, you know, they help clean the air, they help mitigate climate. So uh, the economic benefits, you know, we talked about before. One of the things that was fascinating when I first came here and really looking at how biogreenways came together, uh, Houston Parks Board had Dr. John Crompton do a study about the return on investment for mm. this project, which is a $225 million, $30 million investment, which was really giving access to 3,000 acres of land that was controlled by Harris County Flood Control District. So there was an agreement to work with Harris County Flood Control to provide access. But it, it came up with a series of measures that showed a $90 million return annually wow. of making this investment. And that was an economic benefit, which was really the increase in property value. Of course, that's a double-edged sword with, you know, if you don't manage the impact on communities well enough, but also the savings in health insurance um, Mm. because people are healthier. Um, Also, the environmental benefits, if you you look at what what eco-benefits that parks provide, especially having biogreenways because we were adding acreage to the Mm. system. And now with all of our efforts with resilience and looking at the major existential threat to the city of Houston, (laughs) flooding and climate change, um, that's the future of new parks. It's like we have to... We have to save more land for helping with flood mitigation and and helping with our environment. So, okay, so combine recreational purpose with parks and flood control. No, I think that's so important, both absolutely the flood mitigation side that we often think of. I'm so glad you mentioned, you know, we, we brought up biodiversity in the past, just that kind of flora and fauna interaction, the, the range of species that we enact with. But also something that the, the Kinder Report really makes explicit is that bonus to the tree canopy as well. And we've talked about urban heat effects on the show before and really gotten into, you know, where, where it, urban environments tend to collect more heat and tree canopy is a major issue mm-hmm. for that. And thinking of that not only as, okay, this is a site that we can utilize to help increase that that canopy and to maybe combat some of these heat impacts that we're feeling. Um, but also, you know, that the report really stresses the importance of thinking of that as a really essential part of how people are going to engage with parks, because I think there's a nice line about, you know, when when people most are unlikely to engage the park, and it's, yeah, it's going to be when it's hottest and when it's unbearable, and the canopy, you know, from, from purely anecdote, right? I, I've walked along Buffalo Bayou on a hot day, and, you know, when you're out on the the concrete and walking on the sidewalk it's this is miserable (laughs) and then you get down by the water and you're under the trees Mm -hmm. and you're like oh yeah suddenly even though it's 95 like i can really handle those this is great (laughs) which is a stark difference shade is so important um one thing i wanted to say too that i didn't mention the benefit of these greenways is Mm. an active transportation system that gets people out of their cars and there are a lot of folks here that that 
cycle, not just for recreation, but it's how they get to work. So this whole system of connection between Mm -hmm. the parks and the bios and utility corridors, you know, we explored in a study called Beyond the Bios. It's like, okay, the bios run east and west. How do we connect them up north to south? And, Mm. you know, we're working in partnership to create some of these corridors and the utility easements so that people can move about the city. So it's all, the other thing I think that's so important about this work and the research that Dan is doing is showing how parks fit into this bigger system. Mm. Parks are not just a nice to have. They are (laughs) as important as good schools, you know, housing, transportation. You don't have healthy communities if you don't have all of those elements working at the same time and thinking about how they fit. And I do want to give another shout out to Harris County Flood Control District because they worked with us to create the system, and they're really pushing hard to look at new ways to live with water. And we're working with them in buyout areas. We're working at, you know, when they're putting in a a new flood detention project, how do you design it? And how do you work with the community in advance of putting in the basins? And how do you connect it up to existing trail systems? So up in Inwood, we're going to have a ribbon cutting in early December for a new greenway that we're developing as part of the old Inwood golf course that's now going to be a huge detention project, but it's a... It's a combination of Harris County flood control and the city, the city focusing on drainage, Harris County focusing on detention. And then we were asked to come in and create a recreation plan for how does this all work for the community. And so there's been an active group of community champions Mm -hmm. who have been there from day one figuring out what they wanted the system to look like, how do they want to use it, how, how do they support us in this um, experimental Basin K where we're looking at different grasses that we can use that would would treat the land differently. And flood control is very open to trying these new things rather than Bermuda grass everywhere that you have to mow. <laughs> <laughs> but our, our role in BioGreenways is this, not just build it, we're these green developers. Anything that we have to do to put together to make parks happen from land acquisition, design, construction, but we also maintain and conserve this whole mm. system. And that's through a partnership with the city. But we just got a federal grant to restore five wetlands along the systems. And so our conservation work, you know, we started as this urban parks group, but Mm -hmm. we're sort of a major land conservation effort working in partnership with all of our conservation partners out there. There's a – we just changed our name. Let's (laughs) see. It's Houston Conservation Action Network. Okay. We used to be the – Conservation Flood Mitigation Group. We came together <laughs> during the the uh, bond hearings on the uh, Harris County flood control had the $2.9 billion of bonds on the ballot. And we came together to be part of the conversation about how does that work, you know, coordinate with conservation. They have to be hand in hand. So the community here is seeing the big picture and pushing for more parks, which is why I think you got the survey results that you did, because these parks are serving so many different functions than what the traditional thought of a park should be. It's very exciting. So 
I, I want to dig into, because I think you're already kind of hinting at what's next for the park system, and I, I, I do want to get there, but I actually want to go back for just a second um, and ask, you know, I, I think one of the interesting things is the Kinder Report opens really with a pretty explicit, over the last 20 years, our parkscape has changed dramatically. We've referenced, you know, several, I, I did a quick, you know, trying to, uh, to make sure I was not incorrect, and I was not, uh, Googling this morning of, you know, top attractions in Houston, and pretty much any list you go to in the top, you know, 50 15, certainly 25, you're going to see some, you know, Herman Park, a Memorial Park, Buffalo Bayou, um, you know, just the parkscape itself has really been transformed. Um, I'm wondering if you can talk a little about how it is and why it is that we've seen so much a change over the last decade or two around our parks, um, but also these these big signature parks, how are we moving them out? Because you've mentioned the Bayou Greenways, but you've already also hinted at, you know, Buffalo Bayou is amazing. It is a beautiful park. There's a reason I, you know, I wanted to live near it when I moved here to have access to it. But how do we get that out in in other areas or at least versions where people don't have to just go just drive to Memorial Park um, or, or just get to Buffalo Bayou to really enjoy that kind of really remarkable resource for the city? Yeah, so <laughs> I, I'll, I'll hop in. Um, I, I know, Beth, you could uh, absolutely contribute as well. I guess one of the things I know we both have so much to say. It's great. Well, <laughs> we'll have questions. you back soon. It's fine. <laughs> Uh, one of the things that comes to my mind is thinking about the uh, uh, mayors uh, mm. that we've had in the city, thinking back with Bill White, thinking about Anise Parker, uh, where uh, they were very much grappling uh, you know, during their administrations with this question of how do we transform some of our larger park systems, mm. right? So like uh, uh, Memorial Park uh, has been in existence since the 1920s. I, Herman, uh, before that, Emancipation Park back in the 1870s. Um, you know, and so we've Houston has a history of parks, but it also, unfortunately, sort of has this uh, period of time where there was uh, a focus on the energy capital of the world and the transformation of of us becoming this juggernaut of an economy. And and unfortunately, it's one of those I think moments of an economy at at all costs. Um, and what you saw in the late 1990s into the early 2000s, and this is where, again, Bill White and then these Parker's administrations kick in, um, is this uh, commitment to we are that juggernaut now, 27th largest economy in the world here in Houston. Um, and so uh, what do we do to make sure that this is not just a place people come to make a little bit of money, but this is a place that people come to live mm. and enjoy that life, kind of mm-hmm. quality of life component. Um, and so with that uh, initiative underway uh, in those late, again, late 1990s, early 2000s, um, you have this improvement in, th- in these massive parks, uh, destination parks uh, here within Houston. Uh, really with the uh, you know, Mayor Turner's administration coming into the office, um, that is one of the first times that, yes, there's been a continued focus and commitment to those destination parks. Uh, but with Mayor Turner, there really was a an intentional investment in neighborhoods, mm. recognizing that we have, we can put hundreds of millions of dollars into our destination parks to turn them into the, the again, the renowned you know places they are. 
But those are all centrally located here in Houston. And as we were talking about earlier, the many, many miles that Houston is spread out does not make those parks readily available to everyone in the city, particularly if I don't have a car or if Mm. I have limited access to that vehicle, sharing cars in a household. And so with Mayor Turner and his 50-50 initiative, We Love Our Parks initiative, uh, there was this renewed commitment into making sure that when we're talking about parks, we're talking about that park down the street and we're investing in that park down the street. Um, The challenge there really does come back to that issue of funding, though, Um, that those big parks, those destination parks, they attract money. And so Mm -hmm. when I say hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, yes, some of that's taxpayer money, but there's also been incredible generosity from the philanthropic community, from various different gifts and other fund funders interested in standing up those different spaces here in Houston. Uh, but when you look at those neighborhood parks, that becomes trickier, which is the beauty of the 50-50 mm-hmm. parks idea, is it starts to bring some of that private dollars into the conversation um, and into the commitment to those parks. Um, I'll say that's really significant, partially because you know some of these older parks you're talking about have these really well-established, decades-long conservancies: Memorial Park, Herman Park. You know, have organizations who are dedicated to preserving them. And then we have McGregor Park that was mentioned earlier, which <laughs> is you know a fantastic park and is incredibly well utilized. A- very, very popular in terms of uh, of how community groups engage with it, park in the city, and the fact that, you, I believe, Beth, you just said, you know, they only very recently had a conservancy form. I mean, that that shows a little bit of these these issues of, you know, who's getting the attention, where where it's going, um, and yeah, and exactly why, why that kind of funding network structure that we're thinking about is so significant. Um, yeah, Beth. Yeah, I, I just wanted to say a couple things. That there's been a friends group for a while that's okay. setting themselves up as a conservancy, as a bigger sort of commitment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, Dr. Teddy McDavid, the mayor of McGregor Park, <laughs> um, has been advocating for the park for a number of years. Mm-hmm. And so the, the idea of updating the master plan that was done back in 2016 before Harvey was, you know, a very important thing, a lot of community support. So there's a lot of activity and interest toward, you know, making McGregor Park the best park it can be. But I wanted to get back to something, and I'm really glad you mentioned Mayor Parker, because I think mayors have a lot to say about parks. Just a reminder, we do have an election tomorrow for anyone who's listening. Yes, we do. (laughs) Um, and, And it's fascinating when you ask about what's what's been happening over the last couple of decades if you take a step back it's been happening all over the country there's a Mm. wave of investment in parks that we haven't seen since the city beautiful movement wow and i think this idea of you know urban areas being of interest to people that where they want to live and how they want to live and i think that Houston is a business town, and if they want to recruit talent, you know, from other places, they have to have the same kind of amenities. And I think the 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 business leaders got that, the civic leaders got that. And I, I think about what has been transformative and why these parks are being addressed. I, I again go back to. Um, you know, Buffalo Biopark and Biogreenways coming along around the same time. And Mayor Parker, in the very first meeting, as I understand it, said, yes, you know, we will invest this much in public if you bring the private. And to have this ballot measure and to look at Biogreenways, and again, 150 miles over nine major bios, that's the single biggest down payment on park equity the city has ever seen. Wow. And 
but it's a down payment. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot to do. But I also go back to the Arthur Comey plan, which in 1913, Dan, I think, mm-hmm. 1912, 1913. I'll point out that you mentioned the City Beautiful movement and said, you know, this is the largest investment, and that's around when the City Beautiful movement right. is in its heyday. So that's when people we're, were laying about- out cities in America and putting a lot of effort into the public realm. Yeah. You know, I moved here from Chicago. So Daniel Burnham <laughs> plan, you know, they had they had people, our kids reading that in schools. Yeah. That, you know, it, this was really important how a city looked. But it was about a century ago or even a about little more a than a century ago. ago. But that's when these parks came to be. I mean, you know, and, and he No, I'm just excited for, to hear it as the largest investment since then because that's, that's exciting. <laughs> I, think, I think that's really happening across the country. And as land is so expensive... Mm. We're all trying to get creative about adding more parkland in unusual places. So the bios, railroad corridors, Mm. um, you know, old brownfield sites, detention ponds. You know, how do you keep adding to the system? And then thinking about quality again, you know, the the focus on neighborhoods with Mayor Turner was, he called it his Complete Communities Initiative. And 5050 Parks were part of that. And what I want to really clarify, I mentioned that this was with the business community, and we did team up with Greater Houston Partnership, thinking, you know, how do you get get businesses to invest? But what's happened is it isn't just businesses. It is Terzas. It is the county. You know, we, we talk about Houston Parks and Rec. They are the city's park entity, but each of the four precincts has its own parks department. Mm-hmm. And so more and more, the city and the county are collaborating on improving parks. So Commissioner Briones just made a sizable investment in the 5050 Park Partners program because they serve her constituents in the county. And you know, Commissioner Ellis has worked with Mayor Turner on bike lanes and other park improvements, a big supporter of BioGreenways. In fact, all four commissioners have supported BioGreenways beyond the city's commitment. So where Houston really shines is this collaborative model. And while we rank low on public investment in parks, we are really high in terms of private contributions. So I think our challenge is keeping the public in public-private partnership um, and making sure that the investments that we're making, the capital investments, can be maintained. And I think Houston Parks and Rec does a great job, given the limited resources they have and the ground they have to cover. So that's why it's so important for us to, you mentioned the mayoral election. We uh, were one of the sponsors, along with 24 organizations, of a forum on parks and Mm -hmm. making sure that parks are on the agenda. But how, you know, how do you maintain what you invest in? And, And I think that's a problem across our country with any public infrastructure, whether it's roads or bridges. We don't think about long-term maintenance in America. (laughs) We need to start. It isn't just for parks, but that's where this operating funding is so important. And then the the last thing I'll say, because I know you probably have another question, (laughs) but I I didn't want to forget this. What was so powerful about the 50-50 effort where we evaluated all these parks, 200 parks, sending teams out to these parks, looking at the prior record of spending, and then figuring out what should the criteria be for making investments. So we're, Mm. we're hoping that in the next administration, they will embrace this methodology and take a look at 
how do you manage your CIP, your capital improvement program? How do you manage your budgeting? How do you make these decisions with the precious public dollars you have for where those dollars are going? So building the, if you think of Houston Parks Board, we're sort of the conservancy for the city and the region. Well, mm-hmm. We can't do it all, but we, we do work with dozens of small neighborhood organizations, but we have to look at the system, not, not, just a park at a time. We have to really understand how we can better serve our fellow Houstonians with a different way to fund parks. Absolutely. Okay. I, I have so many more questions for you. And unfortunately, we're, we're really at the end of our time today. So I, I so appreciate both of you joining us in this conversation. We have to have you back on to talk more about parks yes. and, and what's happening and the many things the Kinder Institute uh, continues to research. But I, I so appreciate you boy, both uh, joining us and giving us your time today. So thank you so much, Beth and Daniel. Um, and thank you for your expertise and all you do in the city. Thank you so much. This was really fun. We'll do it again. <laughs> yes, thank you for the opportunity. <laughs> uh, we're going to go over now to a story with Dr. Sylvia D. So I want to turn our attention now to uh, an event that happened a little under two weeks ago. Uh, on Wednesday, October 25th, Hurricane Otis made landfall in Mexico, close to Acapulco, Um and it hit early in the morning, um, 1.25 a.m., so really when most people were asleep. Uh, what's really remarkable and, and terrifying about the storm is that it overwhelmingly materialized basically overnight. Uh, the wind speeds increased by 115 miles per hour in 24 hours. So this is a storm that more or less really came into being it, within a day. Um, and I think for most of us on the Gulf Coast, that's kind of an ultimate nightmare scenario, this idea that a hurricane can just materialize in a day and hit, uh, and that it can be as catastrophic as a Category 5 storm. Um, Otis has, uh, the, the death toll has reached close to 50. Um, there are over 50 people still missing. Uh, the damage to the cities and towns in the area is severe. Um, so I reached out to Professor Sylvia D., who is Assistant Professor of Earth, Environmental, and Planetary Sciences at Rice University. And Sylvia, thank you so much for for joining us and for chatting. Um, What I really would love to hear about is Hurricane Otis. Uh, Otis came kind of out of nowhere uh, just about a week ago overnight and was, uh, I believe, a Category 5 storm. Um, Can you just talk to us a little bit about how is it possible for a hurricane to have just materialized seemingly out of thin air? Yeah, so this was a a big surprise as a storm. And as you mentioned, it was so damaging in part because it developed so rapidly. Um, So when we think about hurricanes and tropical cyclones and how they're adjusting to climate change, there are sort of four metrics we use to measure how they're changing. Um, One is the frequency, so how often do they occur? One is the intensity. Um, One is how much rainfall they have. And the last one is the speed at which they move. And in the case of Hurricane Otis, um, it's actually a sort of additional metric, which is how fast does the hurricane develop or the rate at which it intensifies. And this is a very active area of research. It's actually, um, there was a a paper published on this just a couple weeks ago about how um, hurricanes are intensifying more rapidly. So again, in the case of Hurricane Otis, what the data shows is that over the 20th century and into the 21st century, Um, the rate at which wind speeds in hurricanes are increasing by about 40 miles an hour. 
um, has increased. So in the past, it took about 36 hours for hurricanes to speed up by 40 miles an hour in terms of the winds. Now it's only taking 24 hours. And Otis was incredibly fast and as a result, incredibly damaging. Um, climate change is making these events more likely because we have hotter ocean temperatures that are lasting later into the fall. So even though we're sort of well into the fall season and oceans are generally cooling, the ocean is staying warmer for longer, which is fueling very intense hurricanes. And as long as a tropical low pressure system develops and can maintain uh, those big, fast wind speeds around the low pressure system, you can have this rapid intensification process occur. And that's what happened with Otis, unfortunately, um, you know, basically overnight, as we saw, which made it very difficult for early warning systems to be deployed. So does this mean that we're going to need to to rethink when hurricane season is or how long it's lasting? Or are we seeing a change there? Yeah, so there's, again, that's a very active area of research. But um, speaking from sort of a climate physics perspective, the ingredients you need for a hurricane are warm water and um, sort of favorable atmospheric conditions and a low pressure. And specifically, you need a low pressure system with a thunderstorm cluster to develop, which allows the winds to start circling around the storm. And uh, in a changing climate, we have warmer ocean temperatures. And as I mentioned, those warmer ocean temperatures are persisting longer into the fall, but they're also occurring earlier in the spring. So we do expect just from ocean temperatures warming alone that we would have a broader hurricane season on both sides. Well, okay, and I'm assuming I know the answer to this, but I, I do want to be specific. You know, we, we're in Houston here. We're thinking about the Gulf Coast. I'm assuming this means that we can expect more more severe and quicker hurricanes along the gulf as well this isn't isolated to some area right this is this is going to directly impact us absolutely so the way that we speak about the risk of these types of natural disasters like hurricanes um, is in terms of their likelihood so because of climate change the likelihood that storms along the gulf coast and elsewhere will be more damaging is higher and the damage comes both in the form of rainier storms mm -hmm. and in the form of higher wind speeds. So higher wind speeds can also exacerbate storm surge. We also have sea level rise that's exacerbating storm surge. So in general, we're expecting rainier, windier, higher storm surge events as the climate warms. And part of that is due to a prediction that has been around for a very long time about the fact that a warmer atmosphere stores more water vapor. So as, as you've been a person who's lived in Houston in the <laughs> summer, you know that it can be more humid in the summer, right? Yeah. And so as we, on the average, warm up the atmosphere, we expect there to just be more rain that gets sort of pushed into these storms. Um, and then of course, you know, from a risk perspective, um, we're on the topic of Hurricane Otis, this uh, rapid intensification increase that we see again over the last 50 years or so, um, basically the rate at which wind speeds increase in a storm, uh, that also causes significant risk, again, uh, in the form of giving people enough time to get out of harm's way. And to that point, okay, I'm <laughs> I'm from the Gulf South. I, I grew up with hurricanes. I talked to friends, you know, from California who are very used to earthquakes, right? And I'm like, I can't handle earthquakes. I can't do <laughs> 
the thing that comes out of nowhere. Um, I, I need my my couple of days of warning for a hurricane. Are there things that we can do to be better prepared, to be more aware? Are there are there new technologies that we should be researching so that if these storms are going to come faster, that you know we really maybe have more advanced warning, or is it really that we just have to do a lot more kind of emergency preparedness for these these really fast occasions? Yeah, great question. So a couple of parts to the answer on. Uh, in the long term, we can try to increase our resilience to storms through infrastructure changes. So things like building, um, you know, seawalls or uh, barriers for storm surge that will help protect coastal communities. Um, the controversial solution, of course, is managed retreat, moving people out of harm's way that are uh, living along the coast. Um, in terms of early warning and preparedness, you know, most of the time, if a storm is coming, especially through the Gulf of Mexico or the Atlantic, we will see it develop on satellite data. And we have very accurate storm track models that usually do allow us to have maybe a day or two, or even maybe a week of time to prepare and get out of harm's way. So, you know, the, the hurricane forecasting um, technology is actually very, very good these days. Um, depending on where you live along the Gulf Coast or the Atlantic Coast, you might have more or less time, right? If a hurricane forms way out in the Atlantic and starts steering towards Bermuda, right? Again, we might have uh, up to three to four days of time to prepare. Um, storms like Otis are not impossible in the Gulf of Mexico because there could be a storm system that develops very close to the coast. Um, luckily, we haven't had an event like that, um, to the best of my knowledge, that develops quite as rapidly as Otis in the Gulf. Um, but broadly speaking, we usually will have, um, you know, up to a, a, about a day or more of time to move out of harm's way or at least prepare. Um, and the other solution, of course, is making our infrastructure more resilient, moving out of harm's way. Now, that being said, vulnerable communities often do not have the luxury of moving out of harm's way or cannot um, or, do, or don't have the support of the local government in terms of um, putting in infrastructure for protection. Um, the other thing I was going to say about that is that, um, you know, in terms of staying in place, you know, we saw during Katrina uh, and many other storms like Harvey, many people do choose to stay in place. And so, of course, the advice we always get in Houston is make sure you have your hurricane kit ready to go, having extra water, making sure you have, you know, dry food in place. So if a storm event like Otis were to strike us here in Houston, we'd be prepared. No, that's that's really helpful. Yeah, you're the idea of the kind of overnight storm, um, as you're mentioning, you know, in the Gulf, I'm I'm just having flashbacks to the nineteen hundred hurricane, right, in Galveston and the descriptions that are the storm that comes out of nowhere. So I think I think for a lot of folks that is kind of our, our ultimate fear. Um, but this is this is good to hear that for, for most storms we still have some preparedness. Um, even if, yeah, it sounds like these these events are going to become more likely as we continue forward. So I think that's that's all we have for today. Sylvia, this has been wonderful chatting with you. Um, I really appreciate your time and we'll, we'll have you back on the program soon. So thank you so much. Thank you. It's a pleasure speaking with you. All right, we'll go over now to our researcher, Jaden Bray Boyce, uh, who has a way to get involved around town this week. Hey y'all, have you ever sat there wondering, how can I get more involved in the community's fight towards climate change justice? Well, if you have, I strongly urge you to consider becoming a volunteer with the Sierra Club Texas chapter. 
you'll have the incredible opportunity to work with other dedicated individuals who are interested in helping build coalitions, organize events, lobby decision makers, and more. Through various activities, as being a Houston Group Forestry volunteer, you'll have the opportunity to make tasks such as write letters, take photos, and social media outreach, among others. There is an abundance of opportunities waiting for you that only require a few hours of your time monthly. For more information, please contact Natalie Martinez at sierraclub.org or visit Sierra Club Lone Star Chapter. Thanks, Jaden. Uh, lastly, I, I just want to highlight that tomorrow is Election Day, and no single action we can take matters more, especially on the local level, than voting. Um, please make sure, raise your voice, go to the polls, vote for the future of our city. There are not only the candidates on the ballot, but a huge range of propositions at both the local and state level. We were mentioning uh, Prop 14 today that's about you know increasing funds to buy more land for state parks. And so, you know, really fitting for our park discussion here. Um, so, so these elections are really significant, and I would, I would really urge listeners, if you haven't already voted, please find the time tomorrow. Take a look at your ballot before you go. The Houston Chronicle has a great uh, service that you can put in your address, and you can find out exactly what's on your ballot. So, so please make sure to get that uh, done tomorrow. <laughs> it's, it's election day. Uh, finally, uh, next time on Gulf Streams, we're talking with Dr. James Elliott, Anna Rhodes, and Dean Rachel Kimbrough, three sociologists at Rice University, who've extensively studied disaster recovery, and especially Hurricane Harvey recovery. Uh, They'll offer a better understanding of how we recover from disasters, what our recovery weaknesses are, and thoughts on Houston post-Harvey. If you have questions or ideas for what you'd like featured, leave a voicemail at 713-348-4081 or email me at westont at rice.edu. Gulfstreams is a co-production of KPFT Houston and Rice's Center for Environmental Studies with support from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation and the Rice Sustainability Institute's Eco Studio, produced by Weston Twardowski, co-produced by Joseph Campana, audio engineer Rico Enriquez, research support provided by Jaden Bray Boyce and Sienna Yen. Stay tuned for the R&R Show with Ronnie Renfro and Tom Richards here on KPFT Houston. <laughs>